As you're uh, finding your seats, let me dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And they'll head to their new classes. And while they're doing that, I'll invite you to open your Bible, if you brought one with you, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 is where we'll be today. Uh, way back when, when Miles uh, mentioned being a kid, uh, maybe we're a little older than that, somewhere in adolescence, uh, uh, the two of them, uh, Miles and Callie, were in a band called Jolly Napier, and Ashley and I wanted to be in a band, <laughs> but we had no musical ability, so we just followed them from place to place and like set up sound equipment and ate their green room food. Um, on multiple occasions, people would ask us, why are you here? And we're like, oh, we're with the band. We're just, we're with them. Um, and uh, God is doing some incredible things in both, through both of them and both of their ministries. And I'm very appreciative that they've stepped in uh, and um, helped uh, lead us in worship through song today. As we open God's word, would you pray with me? Would you ask God, the God of the universe that opened his mouth and spoke everything into being, would you ask that God to speak to you today? God, you say of your word that it is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. The ability to divide joint and marrow, soul and spirit. And so we ask that you do that in our own hearts today. The lies that we've believed in the, in the, from the world, from the enemy, somehow mix it in with parts of your truth to get a distorted image of the real truth. I pray that you would expose those things. Jesus, that you'd be lifted high. Holy Spirit, would you sh show us the face of Jesus today that we may see him and worship. It's in your mighty name that we pray, amen. Sometimes I think we need to see, uh, we need to shift our perspective slightly so that we would be able to see correctly, see through a new lens. And so we're starting a few week series today before we get into our next book that we're going to walk through, um, asking the question, what is the church? What is the church? If I showed you a picture, you know, a little home art project you can barely make it out what it is, and you assumed maybe a three or four year old, maybe you've done this with your kids, and you're like, oh, it's a butterfly. And they're like, no, it's a castle. You're like, oh, that's what I meant, it's a castle. And you might say, oh man, that's so cute. But then if I told you that Pastor Jason drew it, you would think, man, poor thing, uh, he needs help. When you shift your perspective on where the picture came from, it kind of changes, right, your, your understanding of it. You see it in a different light. And so I want to ask that question today, that we would just take the word of God and let it define what the church is supposed to be, the gathered people of God. If I showed you a few pictures, I think they're in there. Some of us think that uh, church may be this, right? The little white church you see. I don't know if any of us have ever attended a church like this. Uh, then the next, uh, the stained glass windows are more of a high church. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of church or even uh, the next, this is a church meeting in hiding somewhere, which is where most of the churches meet across the world. And then maybe the next one, this is church in China, as 
they've passed laws that prohibit them from worshiping in public. And then the next, we're seeing little church plants start up. This is how we started as a church, just a few couples around the table talking about God's ideal of what the church could be and should be and what God was leading us to be as a church. Technically, the word church is the word ekklesia, which is a Greek word. But interestingly, our English word for church comes from a German word, kirch, which means a sacred place. And it's been changed. Rather than ecclesia, a gathering, a spiritual gathering, which is what it actually means, most of us think of a steeple, a building, we think of some sort of image. When William Tyndale devoted most of his life to translating the Bible into English, and every time he came to the word ecclesia, that we now call church in the Greek, he translated it as congregation or spiritual gathering rather than church because he wanted us to reclaim the idea that church was not a place to go, but it was a movement to join. And we see this, right, in the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. That Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And in Acts 2, right after Pentecost, we see them gathering. What did it say? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to the breaking of bread. And they met in homes daily. They began to pool their money together to meet needs. And we see it really lived out. Maybe it's hard, um, it's hard uh, to describe But it's easy to see when we see a picture of it actually living out. J.D. Greer says this of the current church. In every age, the church faces the danger of degrading itself from a movement to a place. From a conduit of God's mighty rushing wind to a sacred place where we seek serene spiritual moments. From a rescue station to a spiritual country club. This is certainly true in our day. I've heard the average church described like a football game, 22 people in desperate need of rest, surrounded by 22,000 in desperate need of exercise. So over the next few weeks, we're going to go back to a few passages, and there's a lot of them, that describes the nature of the church and what it should be and what it should look like so that we can see if we're being faithful as a church to live out the commands of God and reflect the heart of Jesus to the watching world. If you saw the news yesterday, more shootings. And you just can't help but think this world is evil, is it not? That there's evil in it. That the enemy is working. Anytime you see destruction, division, Deception, you know the enemy is behind it and he is certainly at work. And what I'm saying is if the church ever needed to be the church, it's now. If we ever needed to be the real people of God. When you look back, a couple weeks ago we were in Exodus 33 and what was the prayer of Moses? As God said, Moses, I'm not going to go with you because of the sin of the Israelites and because they're stiff-necked people, I'm not going to go. And what did Moses pray? God, who are we unless you go with us? Unless we're the people in whom the God of the universe walks with. And this is the picture even of the New Testament church as they gathered in the book of Acts. You can't get through the book of Acts without seeing signs and wonders, without seeing the power of the Holy Spirit at work, without seeing the conviction of sin, without seeing the resolution of the church to stand in the face of opposition and saying, you know what, I don't care what you tell me to do, I can't help 
but go and speak and preach the gospel. That's the church. And then we fast forward a couple thousand years and what do we see the church? I've got really one point today, and this is it, that our identity shapes our ethics. Our identity shapes our ethics. Let's look in Ephesians chapter 2. You're probably familiar with Ephesians 2. The first part is this beautiful theological treaty from Paul talking about who we once were, but God, that statement, we should write that and remember that all the time, but, but God, as we were lost in sin, but God has come because of being rich in mercy with his great love with which he loved us. And then the end of it kind of gives us a definition, kind of speaks into our identity. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, <clears throat> Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. <coughs> I want to focus in on that verse in 19 <clears throat> or fellow citizens with the saints, here's the phrase, that we're members of the household of God. Ephesians 2 was written to Gentiles who were once alienated and kept in such far distance. They had the court of the Gentiles, but they could never enter in, let alone get close to the very presence of God. They were always put away and always far off. And Paul is now reminding them of their new place in God's family. You once had to stay out front. You once had to stay on the lawn, but now you're invited in. More than that, not just invited in, now you've been adopted into the family of God, and now you are a member of God's own household. Church is a family, it's not a business. There's a lot of pictures we see, and we're going to tackle a couple of those in the coming weeks, even several pictures, that, even in our own passage today, of citizens and saints and structures and holy temples and dwelling places for God. But I want to focus on this idea of family today. Family, not a business. When we were saved, we didn't become employees. We became sons and daughters, members of God's household. Now, every one of you would probably agree with me in that very same statement, right? But somehow we don't live and operate in such a way that that's true. How you view something matters. Our identity shapes our ethics or our actions how you view and understand the real nature of the church really matters. One of the things that I hate is bad service. I literally hate it. Like if I'm at a restaurant and the service is bad, I'm just not a good person. I just, you know, I'm paying you my hard-earned money. Ashley and I were coming home from Fort Worth yesterday. We went over and did a wedding in Fort Worth. We stopped in Terrell, which has become the new hotspot in DFW, Terrell, Texas. Bucky's, right, everybody? We went to Chick-fil-A. <clears throat> they got a new Chick-fil-A, and we waited 15 minutes for our food, which is unbelievable for Chick-fil-A, first of all. I do not know, you know, I think Chick-fil-A should run the country, but not that one, <laughs> because that one, 
And I, it took me like 10 minutes to work myself down after I left Chick-fil-A because I'm trying to get home or I was swinging Chick-fil-A. You know, the Bozier Chick-fil-A line will be a thousand cars long and take three minutes and we'll be good. So frustrated because I'm paying the money. I have expectations for them, right? A while back, Ashley and I went to a steak restaurant here in town. I won't name what it was. And they brought her a salad and there was a roach in it. Seriously. Ashley, a gasp. <laughs> roach. Called the manager over, like, hey, there's a roach. And he's like, oh, we're sorry about that. And then a couple minutes later, he comes back and says, you know, we want to offer you a free appetizer. <laughs> no, we don't want to eat here anymore. We've seen roaches in the food. You go to a restaurant and someone doesn't serve you immediately. You're looking around like, man, where, where are the drinks at? Somebody got to bring us a drink. Somebody, I need some water. We're demanding a certain kind of service because we're giving them our money because it's a business. It's an establishment. <clears throat> but what if I walked into my house later today and sat down at the table and started demanding someone bring me water? Hey, where's my water? My wife might slap me across the face, possibly. Get your own water. Because it's a family. We don't expect to be served in the family. Now, it's nice when, when that does happen, of course, and it's nice when we're able to serve one another. But you have different expectations for family in a restaurant, different expectations for family in a business, do we not? Because it's family, you have different expectations. This is what it's talking about here in Ephesians 2, that the church is not a business. Now, we do have business practices, and we are 501c3, and there is a budget and those kind of things. But the nature of the family, the nature of the church is a family. This is the idea Jesus used so often when he talked about being part of his kingdom. He said in John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Using this familial language. Again, in Luke 6, Jesus talking, beloved your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil sons of the most high again familial language when you view the church as a business then you feel like employees and the pastors as upper management so you work hard to please the boss so that he might show you favor but that only leads to frustration and burnout in the end but if you view the church as family, which it is, and you are sons and daughters, and you're loved and known, and you already have the favor of God because of your position in him. When you view things as a business, church as a business, then our service seems like begrudging duty. But as a family, our service is out of the overflow and delight from our own heart. Do you get the point? Do you, get the point? Do you see how the different perspective really does matter? We talk all the time about being part of the family. It's one of our key identities that we're a family and we ask you to serve regularly, but not because we need employees, because that's what you do when you're part of a family. In the family, you serve each other. The other day, we were making dinner. Ashley was at work and had worked a long day, and so I was off that day, and me and the kids decided that we were going to make dinner. And so I asked all the kids to do something, and I asked my Ellie Joyce, my middle child, to set the table. Claire was helping me cook. I'm not sure what Hudson was doing. And Ellie looked at me and said, Dad, I'm too old for that now. And I understand what she was saying. What she was saying is I want to help cook like Sissy is cooking. 
But it makes this point well, whether you're 2 or 42, someone still needs to set the table. Sometimes we just need to step in. Sometimes we just need to start serving somewhere. Say it's well beneath us or not. We should serve out of the overflow and delight in our hearts. It might be better to compare the church to family Thanksgiving. I'm sure you have some form of this in your family, a Thanksgiving, Christmas, or holidays when you show up and you either bring food that you cooked at home or you get there and everybody just jumps in and cooks and does something. When we would gather for Thanksgiving at my grandmother's, Leighton and I's job was to go out to the shed and get the tables. Now the shed, yeah, they wouldn't let us touch the food. We would eat it uh, before Thanksgiving started. They knew us too well. Stay away from the rolls. Um, they had this nasty shed outside, dingy, full of wasps and snakes and monsters, we thought. The only time we went out there is when we went to get tables, right? And so we went out and we would get the tables and bring it in. And then the older I got, <clears throat> my job was still to get the tables. So here I am, a grown man with a family. I'm a pastor of a church, and I still get asked, hey, Luke, would you go out to the shed and get the tables? And that's okay, because we understand that we're part of the family. And you do things to help and serve the family. It's just out of the nature. That's what, that's what a family does, isn't it? You know the only people who don't serve at Thanksgiving? They're the kids, because the kids are immature. We're not mad at them for being immature. We don't get upset with our kids because they're four or they're six, right? They're just there. They still think life is all about them. We're okay with that because we know that they're going to grow up. They're the guests. They're new. They're not necessarily part of the family. We want to be hospitable to them. They're okay. We don't, we don't need them to serve at Thanksgiving. And then there's that normally, uh, that selfish family member, normally an uncle, who sits on the couch watching football, yelling for people to bring things to him. It's just weird, right? It does nothing to help. Only irritates me. And it does so because in the family, it's just expected that we would all jump in together and share this load and burden and serve each other. And when you view the church, I didn't make up this term, this comparison. This is what scripture says, that the church should be as a family, that we're members of the household of God then it should be that when we come into the church that we jump in and we begin to serve one another. In a family, you're supposed to mature. You understand that's the natural process of family members are to mature. Natural process of people in the church is to mature, that we're supposed to grow up. If my kid was not maturing, if she was not growing up, if her body wasn't changing physically, and if her mind wasn't advancing, and her, her emotions weren't changing, if spiritually even she wasn't growing, then we would all be alarmed, and that would be the thing that we would talk about, and my grandma would know, and, and my mom would know, and everybody would know, and we'd be praying, something is developmentally wrong with my child, they're not, they're not growing up, they're not maturing, and we would go see the doctors and the specialists, and we would do everything we can, because the nature of being part of the family is to mature. Again, yesterday we were at this wedding and we're seeing people that we haven't seen in a long time. They're asking us about our kids and we're telling them, man, your kids are growing up. They just seem to be getting so big. And we're like, yeah, we know. But that shouldn't be a shock to us. We should be excited about that because that means things are happening in the natural process in which they should be, that we are maturing. Yet it doesn't seem to be that way in the church. 
You can belong to the church and be in the church and even be part of God's family and yet never mature. Like an adult running around in a diaper. And yet we're not shocked by that. We don't even say, hey, you know what? It's crazy, Luke, that you've been here for three or four or five years walking with Jesus, I suppose, and yet you're the same person. You're not growing up. You're not maturing. What's wrong? Listen in in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. Again, this familiar language. So I'm at the fivefold ministry in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When we see that to mature manhood, we're like, well, what's maturity look like? Oh, the standard at which we should be growing into is into the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up and to end in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You see that familiar language, right? And you also see that idea of maturation, of maturing. We're to grow up in every way. We are, <clears throat> through unity, the knowledge of the Son of God, we are to become mature. So that in contrast, we're not like little kids who believe one thing one minute and something else the next minute, who are easily scared and frightened by things, by you know, monsters under the bed or whatever. We have to go in and kind of talk reason because they're kids and we understand that and we go remind that again and again. But again, if Jason called me every night, he was scared of the monsters under his bed, we'd have to go see a therapist, right? Because that's not normal. God gave special giftings to people in the church, not just the pastors, but certainly them, to equip the church, the family of God, to grow up, to mature. Listen, church, and I want you to hear my heart. This is the whole game. The whole game is taking on the likeness of Christ and being transformed in his image, as Paul says in Corinthians, from one degree of glory to the next. That's the whole game. And yes, it should come with regular attendance. It should come with uh, practicing the biblical disciplines. All those are things that form us into the image of Christ. But this is it, that we have got to grow up. And what typically happens in a church, if I can be so honest with you, is you come with us for a while, and all of a sudden you're shocked that we're getting into your business. But that's what a family does. We care for each other. If you're not growing, we want to see you grow. And sometimes that means even in here that we've got to speak truth to one another. And certainly we do that in love and certainly do that with grace. Absolutely. But we wouldn't be a family if you were with us and you're not growing and we don't address something. But Paul would later write the church at Corinth in his first letter. He's like, you've got some people in this crazy sin that not even the pagans do. You got to address that. Because that's what it means to be part of God's family. To really understand this, you've got to kind of grasp these two theological ideas in Paul's teaching and the Gospels as well. Justification and sanctification. You've heard of those, right? Justification is this one-time act of trusting Christ as your Savior and receiving forgiveness of your sins. And positionally, at that point, you are members of God's own household. Through your faith in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, you're now positionally part of God's family. You're justified, just as if you'd never sinned. But sanctification, 
This is what our passage is talking about here. This is the growing up of the Christian life. It's the maturing. It's the outworking of our salvation that is literally changing us bit by bit to look more and more like Christ. This is what James would say as a warning to the church. Hey, don't fool yourself. A faith without works is a false faith. If your life is not growing into the image of Christ, and yes, it's not near as fast as you probably want it to be, but when you look back over your life, even the song we sang as we look back that God has been so good to us and surely he's going to continue in his goodness to us. Surely you can see that, that he is long-suffering and patient and his kindness leads us to repentance and slowly but surely as the Old Testament picture of the potter and the clay, that God, our master, through the work of the Holy Spirit who is in us, for everyone who has placed their faith and trust in Christ, is molding you into the image of Jesus. That's sanctification. That's the maturing process. Paul would tell the Galatian church in Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see the passion of this spiritual father Have you ever seen someone in the anguish of childbirth? Not the stuff with the drugs. And I'm, and I'm sure that's difficult too. I've never had a baby. But if you've ever seen someone in the anguish of childbirth without the drugs, it's enough to scare you to death. And Paul is using this method. Of course, he's writing to a people who didn't have any of the drugs, right? Or even sanitary conditions for that matter. Everyone understood this, that this is extreme physical pain that I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. First Corinthians 3. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. This problem is not just in the modern church, it was in the church then. That there were people who just refused to grow up. And this is what Paul is saying. I couldn't even address you as spiritual people. But people of the flesh, infants in Christ, and you had to have milk, not solid food. Peter would use the same analogy in chapter 2, verse 2 of his first letter. Like newborn infants long for spiritual milk, pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. You get it, like a baby... They need milk. They can't eat a steak. They don't know what a ribeye is supposed to taste like, right? They can't process that. They have to have milk. It helps them grow. But if you invited my family out to lunch after today and we went to a local restaurant, we're looking over the menu and I asked the waitress to bring me some warm water. And she does and I put some formula in it and start shaking it up a bottle and start drinking it at the table. You're going to think something's wrong with me, correct, Right? Pastor, we invited you here to tell you that we're going to find another church. Because that's not the way. You would be embarrassed and then you would know something's wrong with me. The author of Hebrews uses a similar analogy in chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
In chapter 6, he goes on, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. Do you get the point? That the church is a family? And the nature of the family is that we would mature and we would grow up? It's the natural flow of the family. The family structure is meant to mature people. My main job in life with my kids is to make sure they grow up physically and spiritually and emotionally and mentally. And one day when they turn 18, Lord willing, they're going to leave my house as mature adults. And they're going to go off to college. And they're going to go off to some sort of vacation. And I pray that I've done my job to raise them up. We aren't, I'm not just trying to raise sons and daughters. I'm trying to raise fathers and mothers. Fathers and mothers who have sons and daughters who are matured until they become fathers and mothers who have sons and daughters until they become fathers and mothers. You get the point, right? We're not just raising them to be a good girl and a good guy. We're raising them. Part of the maturation process of the family is to raise them to become fathers and mothers. This is why it's so weird when people walk into the church and they think it's a business. They think it's a restaurant or a hotel and they leave a string of complaints. Well, I didn't like the worship. Well, that's okay, bro. We weren't worshiping you. It wasn't even for you or really about you, right? This is, this is family language. Or when you start to walk with us again and get upset because we ask you to go deeper in relationship with one another and be part of a discipleship process where, you're, where iron is sharpening iron. What did you expect? This is a family. We care for each other. It even says in our passage in, in, uh, in chapter 2, They were built on the foundation, verse 20, verse 21, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I love this idea of being built together, the family built together. Several months ago, uh, we went to... I think it was Reynolds Missional Community out at the uh, Katie Bolting houses. Uh, I think Dad owned a little property, and we were out there to fish and grill. And <clears throat> just by the way, I love those invitations if there's good food. Just saying that. If you're having cereal, invite Jason. Um, we go out there, and they're playing Red Rover. The kids are, not the adults. How fun would that be? The kids are playing Red Rover. You remember that game, right? <clears throat> and little Hudson was playing. You know, you form the wall, you know, you try to run over and bust through it. And every time Hudson would run, they would like open up for him so he could get through. So we asked him about it after. We're like, how'd you like that game? He's like, I dominated. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> you sure did. Being built together, this idea of locking arms with one another against the darkness in our world standing for the things that really matter, pointing people because we're being transformed into the image of Jesus ourselves. When people see us, they should notice this countercultural society, something so different. To grow into a holy temple, every one of these passages, there's a list of things that we should stop doing as we grow into the likeness of Jesus and things we start doing. Look at the first Peter passage again in verse 2. 
he starts, but put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So he starts with this, these things that we shouldn't be doing anymore. Because we're the people of God, and there's a long list of these. Malice, just being mean towards each other. Instead, we should be kind, deceit, trying to cover things up, hypocrisy, acting one way when we're in the family of God and a different way when we're outside of it. Envy, envying other people's status in life or their giftedness, slander. To make yourself look better, you talk bad about other people behind their back. Can I tell you, it breaks my heart that all five of these things are very alive and well in church. They shouldn't be. We need each other, iron sharpening iron. When you hear slander, gossip, hypocrisy, that you address it with love, this is not going to be the place where we do that. We don't, we don't do that in this family. That's not what we do. As we mature, we put those things away. We grow up. What well, scriptures say? When I was a child, I thought and acted as a child. But now that I've matured, I've put away these childish things. You know what one of the main markers of spiritual maturity is? It's personal responsibility. One of the things that plagues the church today, mostly in the West, again, thinking the church is a business, is this idea that the church is there to fulfill your Christian responsibility. So if someone's, I've used this illustration before, someone calls up to the office and say, hey, pastor, I need someone from the church to go and visit this person or to go and do this. And I tell them, hey, bud, you are that person from the church. Hey, pastor, my, uh, my, my neighbor just came to faith in Christ. We need to get him in a new believers class. Hey, buddy, you are the new believers class. Invite him over to your house and open up God's word and start reading it together. If you're a follower of Jesus, following Jesus, there are certain things that Jesus asked for us, that we would pray, that we would care for the poor and needy, that we would pray for the sick, that we would make disciples, that we would love each other. We could go through this long list. Yet we still come to church and we expect the church as an organization to do what Jesus has asked you to do. Now, I'm not down on organization of the church structure. We believe in it. And we work hard to create environments where we can really do this. We ask ourselves, Every week when we have a staff meeting, are we really creating environments where we can make disciples that make disciples that make disciples? You know this about us. We don't care about a huge crowd. We don't care about bigger buildings. That's just not our thing. We want to see disciples making disciples making disciples. Yet people want to rely on the church to do the things that God has asked you to do. When we started the church, we would have people come and ask us, Hey, pastor, what about, what about men's ministry? I say, you know, that's a great idea. Start inviting men over to your house. What about women's ministry? Man, that's a great idea. Start inviting women over to your house. People come and say, you know what? My missional community is just not working for me. Well, if that's, if that's honest and you've tried and you've given yourself to it, that's okay. Just start inviting people to your house and do it every week and call it a missional community and read God's word together. Jason and I had a whiteboard out a couple weeks ago. I'm probably sharing too much. 
we had the whiteboard out in the office and we're drawing all the names and we're like moving people around. And at one point I just looked at him and said, dude, I am so sick and tired of writing people's names on a whiteboard. Listen, as you pursue Christ, you need community. We've read here the 41 one another's. You gotta do that in community. You can't forgive one another by yourself. You forgive one another when you've been hurt deeply because you're investing in community and someone did something that would hurt you. And so then you're given the ability to forgive them, to love one another, to bear one another's burdens. All this happens in community, not on a Sunday morning. It happens when you do life in community. You need to care for the poor and marginalized in our society. Now the church does this and we feed on Sunday nights and we want you to come join us over at the hub. This is what we do. But if that didn't work for you, that's okay. That doesn't mean you can't go and care for the poor and needy. Go volunteer somewhere. Go make some sandwiches at the house and go find the homeless people. They're, they're, they're literally everywhere. and Just feed them and bless them and pray for them. The church doesn't have to plan it. Maybe you don't feel called to adopt. That's fine. Go to one of our families that have adopted and help them, offer to babysit, commit to praying for them. People say, I need a, a Bible reading plan, and we, we provided one, a two-year one. And some people say, well, that doesn't work for me. That's okay. Just read the Bible. Listen. Man, I'm about to get in trouble. When you've tasted and seen that God's good, don't buy the lie that the Holy Spirit inside of you is not growing you into the image of Jesus Christ. And you do have to work to develop an appetite for his word. And you do have to discipline yourself to get up early or to stay up late or to make time for this. But that's just the normal part of being a Christian. And I've been a part of this church's business system. And I was a youth pastor and we had 300 and something kids and we had all the lights and pizza and all the fun and the messages and we would preach the gospel yet we weren't making any disciples because I was telling parents, hey, you bring me your kids and I'm going to disciple them. Well, that's impossible. And I follow up with these kids, thousands of them years later and they're not walking with Jesus. Of all those kids, you know the ones that are walking with Jesus? Those I gave my life to. There's about 20 or 30 of them that lived in my house or that we met weekly for coffee, that we explored God's word together. God's radically changed them. Church, we got to take personal responsibility for growth. We got to grow up. What would it look like for a church to really do this? For people who are committed to following Christ and loving each other deeply for a family that we would put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and slander and envy, that we would sacrificially serve each other and then we would serve the last, the lost, and the least at great cost to ourselves, that everyone in here would use their spiritual gifts together to repair the parts of the world that have been ripped apart by sin. What would it look like? It would look like heaven touching earth, would it not? Would it look like the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of earth? The kingdom of God would be on display and there would be an invitation to a watching and hurting world that there's something more to this life than just working 40 hours a week and living for the weekend and doing whatever you want good on the weekend and then starting the whole process over again. But even greater than that, what if every believer in Shreveport Bossier was doing this, waking up every day, pursuing the heart of God, resolved to take ownership 
of what God's called them to do. You know why I think so many people are frustrated and bored with the church? It's not just the hypocrisy. It's showing up every week and watching people do what God has called you to do. We're not an orphanage. Well, we got one or two super Christians and the rest of us are just still on the milk. We're a family. We should be growing into his likeness. I'm not really sure how to end this. Way off the notes. Other than inviting us to participate in communion. I love this, that we do this most services at the end, and this is a family meal. Jesus Christ with his disciples just a short time before he went to the cross. Took the bread and said, this is my body. And the drink and said, this is my blood. When you gather together, you partake of this in remembrance of me. So as we take it this morning, we remember our justification to become part of God's family. The nature that we're sharing a meal together, just this really big Thanksgiving with the awkward uncles and all, right? We're taking part of the family. Paul says before we take communion, we should examine our heart and repent of any sin. We're going to continue in worship in a minute, but I want to give you a few minutes just right where you are. Would you ask Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction where needed in our hearts? Where we've delegated the responsibility of growing up, of pursuing you, of listening to the promptings of your Holy Spirit. Lord, your word says that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. You've been so kind and so merciful, so full of grace. As we prepare our hearts to participate in communion this morning, would you remind us of our identity as beloved sons and daughters? We're not employees. And we don't serve you out of duty, but out of the delight and overflow of our heart. For some of us, we've been frustrated for a long time. I pray, as David did, that you would return the joy of our salvation. For others, they served for a while and they got burnt by church. Or they got really hurt, legitimately injured in the church family. Or would you help bring healing to that? There are people who've come today that have something against their brother, that they would go and make that right, even now. And maybe we have some with us that aren't part of the family yet. They've not crossed this line of faith. On the outside looking in, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. I thank you for your grace, your mercy, the good news of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.